Hopkins presented by Four Roses. What's good, baby? How you doing? This is Real Talk. I am Ben Tompkins. We are presented by Four Roses Bourbon, and we've got such a freaking good show for you today. I am so excited about this guest that I got coming up. Jason Durking, UofL's Director of Strength and Operations for Olympic Sports. He is the founder of the Fraser Rehab Ironman Housing Fund, and he joined me. We spent about an hour here talking about why he started the housing fund and how it got started. We talk about what it's like to train and compete in Ironman triathlons, which is ridiculous, okay? If, if you know the, uh, the distances and everything involved in an Ironman, it's just who who would, who would do that? What, what kind of a masochist would do that to himself? This guy, twice. And so he talks about what that's like, what your body feels like afterwards, uh, how many calories you're burning in one of those days. And we talk life advice. We talk best pieces of advice, Bengal versus Ram, all of it. You know, it's, it's, it's a great interview. And I am so excited for you guys to listen to it. Now, if you love it as well, please go ahead and share it. Send it to somebody, your grandpa, your nephew, your uncle, whoever, your boss, okay? And share it on social media, okay? Because I really appreciate that stuff, and that's how we grow the show, right? I am on social media at BennyTomp18. If you're listening for the very first time, welcome, my friends. Good to have you on, all right? We are on Apple Podcasts. We are on Spotify. We are on SoundCloud. We're on Facebook at Real Talk WBennyT. There's a show page. Go ahead and like it. And uh, here's why you would want to be liking this stuff and being subscribed is because the next couple of weeks are going to be phenomenal guests, okay? Next week, I already taped this, uh, Patrick Hughes is a former member of U of L's marching band, and he joins the show to talk about his story. Now, I'm sure if you've ever driven around the city of Louisville, you've seen the hometown heroes' murals hanging up, right? Like Jennifer's Louisville, Denny's Louisville, Griff's Louisville, but did you know that there's 27 of them? All my life, I you know, I look at some of these murals and I've always wondered, who are these people? And shame on me. You know, if, if you grow up in Louisville, if you're from Louisville and there's murals of people around your city, you should probably know who they are, right? So I've been making it a point lately to try and get as many of these people who are still alive on the show. And Patrick is a very special story. Patrick was born without eyes and without the ability to fully extend his arms and legs, but that did not stop him from learning to play the piano at just nine months old and eventually joining UofL's marching band as a trumpet player where for five years he was a rock star, all right? And during that time, his dad is working nights at UPS running on three hours of sleep just so he can attend classes with Patrick every day and then physically push him through every formation at every practice and every game. Just a phenomenal story. So he joins the show next week to talk about what that was like, his book, I Am Potential, and much more. So he's the six, okay? And then the week after that, Thursday the 13th, 
Gustavo Rossetti, the CEO of Liberationist. He is a motivational speaker, and he is author of the book Stretch for Change and Stretch Your Mind. He's going to join the show, and we talk about the principles in his books. Uh, We're going to talk about liberating yourself, getting out of your own way, overcoming perfectionism, a lot of good topics, okay? And then three Thursdays from now, a guy named Matt Plummer, who is the founder and CEO of a company called Zarvana, is going to join the show, okay? And Matt is a productivity coach and a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review. He's a writer. He lives out in the Bay Area, okay? And his company, Zarvana, is an online platform that teaches people how to boost their productivity, save time, and improve performance by positive habit formation, making small changes in our daily routines. So we're going to talk about how to avoid burnout, which a lot of people deal with, right? In in whatever job they are, whatever school, career, wherever, marriage, right? We all face burnout, okay? So how to avoid burnout, what to do when it starts to rear its head, uh, how to really, really make a to-do list and cross those things off, Uh, all other kinds of helpful tips and topics so that anybody that can listen hopefully learns some new ways to fully tap into their potential. So he's coming up in a few weeks. Uh, I'm going to continue to book guests like this on the show. Guys, you're just, you know, if if you're listening for the first time, you're getting in at a great time, my friends, because we are really just starting to tap into just the tip of the iceberg of potential of where this show is going to go from here. So I am so excited. Um, I, I hope you'll continue to follow along. And again, and again, thank you so much for listening. Uh, I've got Jason. And then at the end of this, I have some Uber stories. And then we'll get into some thoughts on the NBA resuming tonight. Thank God. And also some takes on the MLB. All right. But without further ado, here is Jason Durkin. All right, Jason, thank you for joining me. Um, as I started to look at people inside the city that had interesting stories to tell and were making a positive impact on the community, I came across the Fraser Rehab Ironman Housing Fund and started reading about how it got started and who it got started by and, and why it got started. And then as I started almost like an onion, right, I start to peel back these layers and read about you and your story. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is somebody I got to have on the podcast. Thank you for sitting down with me. Uh, how you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks. It's a pleasure. Uh, you know, anytime to talk uh, to a fellow sports fan and uh, and talk a little bit about the, the, the fund is, is always great. So I appreciate the uh, invite. Absolutely. We'll talk about uh, the Ironman fund. We'll talk about what it's like training to become an Ironman athlete. Um, you are the director of Olympic sports at the University of Louisville, but as I mentioned, we're not really going to do much with that and outside of just if you want to kind of explain what it is that you do. Um, but let's start with the charity that you started. Um, who is Tom Morris and what does he mean to you? Yeah, Tom, uh, Tom and I go back quite a ways. Um, so we, we both started as strength and conditioning coaches at Indiana University. Uh, I got my master's degree there and worked full time for a few years. And then he got hired on uh, in the summer of 2005. And so it was interesting because we only really crossed paths for about three months. About uh, three months after he got hired, I took the position at the University of Louisville. Um, so we got, we stayed in touch, um, and we both, uh, participated in triathlons. Um, 
different distances and things, but he was, you know, we were active in training. And so we always kind of stayed in touch and shared our uh, training ideas and our races and race schedules and things like that. Um, ended up doing a half Ironman uh, at, uh, in Benton Harbor, Michigan called the Steelhead Half Ironman in 2012. And so we actually did the race together. And, um, and so that was an awesome experience. And then, um, I'm sorry, that was in 2010. In 2012, uh, he had kind of ch changed his training to kind of focus a little bit more on mountain bike racing. And, uh, and so he was out on a training ride and flipped over the handlebars and ended up becoming paralyzed from the about the waist down chest down actually at the time so um so kind of a catastrophic injury you know kind of for him and i i was always you know like man this guy is just like me you know we're both training for races we're both um you know in kind of the same age range doing in the same profession and you know all of a sudden in a blink of an eye it's you know so much physical ability is just taken away so um that kind of hit home for me a little bit and then uh, when he got transferred actually to the Fraser Rehab Institute for his rehab a few months later, that's when uh, we reconnected. Was it tough watching somebody that you, a lot of the times that you spent together with him, you guys were doing stuff that was really active and you're running, you're biking, you're, you know, and then all of a sudden, and, and, and I guess like that's an identity, right? I mean, that's an identity and watching that get stripped away from somebody how tough was that? Yeah, I mean, he, he I, I know he, he'll, he'll tell you, you know, there were a lot of, there were a lot of ups and downs um, through, through that transition, uh, of course. He had tremendous support, I think, and that's one of the things that um, I realized, you know, just being a part of the athletic department and plugged into that kind of community. Tons of people rallied to his side and from Indiana especially, and, um, and, and his wife is amazing and just – uh, family and friends uh, were huge for him, but I mean his his attitude, I think, and his resilience really shone through. And uh, I think that was one of the things that I was most impressed with was just just a really solid, constant, positive attitude, um, and just the just the determination to make the best of it, you know, and uh, and knowing that that was going to be a, a life changing thing and a, and a long road of recovery. I saw him really, you know, all the effort that we put into training, um, you know, just kind of got transferred into rehab. And so he kind of viewed rehab, I think, a lot of ways is like, now you're training for a different kind of race. You know, it's, it's recovery. And, um, and it's funny because we both kind of talk a little bit about, I think we're very similar when we're doing triathlons. Um, we both talk a lot about, you know, the race itself is fun. The race day, the race experience is fun, but I think we both get a lot more enjoyment and satisfaction out of the training process. You know, <laughs> like the the actual put down the training plan on paper, make the sacrifices. You know, you gotta you gotta eat right. You've gotta change your diet. You gotta get to bed earlier. You gotta sacrifice things on the weekends, the social stuff, and um, and so that whole process for us is just weird. I guess we're you know weird that way, um, but. We, we somehow get a little bit more uh, enjoyment out of the process than the results sometimes. And, and so I think, you know, that was, um, I, I, I think that that helped him a lot too in the rehab process. Yeah, you guys are sickos for that, you know, that to tolerate <laughs> that much pain willingly. I love it. I love it, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, so you start the rehab fund out of a necessity helping out Tom, right? Tell me about how, like what was like a moment or, or like kind of an epiphany when you're like, hey, this is like, we should be doing this. I could do this. Mm. Yeah, there were, there were a lot of epiphanies along the way, honestly. I think one of the first things when, uh, when, he, when I heard that he was getting transferred to, to Louisville and realized, okay, now he's going to actually be in my city. And, you know, there's a lot I could probably try to do to connect him with people that could help. And I reached out initially to the athletic department because one of the big things I think initially was finding him a place to stay. He was coming from Bloomington, Indiana. It's two hours away. It's not like coming from a different you know, across the country, but still like you can't commute that far. Right. Um, and so in order for him um, to really make it work, he needed, a, he, and his wife, you know, too, you know, they needed a place to stay. And so I reached out to the athletic department. I reached out to my church um, and, a, and a couple from my church stepped up right away and offered him a place to stay at their home. And immediately I was kind of inspired by that. And, and just like, man, these, you know, there's so many people really willing to step up and help. Um, that kind of motivated me and inspired me a little bit. <clears throat> and, um, and, you know, I mean, it didn't, it didn't happen right away. I think it was just trying to get, you know, just trying to make sure I was able to be a friend to him and come hang out up at the, you know, at the hospital and bring him some food every once in a while and yeah. stuff like that. Um, but then one thing led to another and, you know, and I got motivated to try to think about, you know, thinking back to that half Ironman we did. Um, and possibly the opportunity to raise some money. Uh, if, if I was to do a race, I was initially thinking about going back and doing the race that we did up in Michigan, the, the half Ironman. And so, um, yeah, just thinking about uh, maybe raising a little bit of money for him. But then, you know, he had, he had a good group of people that had through a GoFundMe had raised a good piece of money for him. And so I started to think, maybe there's an opportunity to work with the people at Fraser Rehab and raise money for something that would impact more people um, in a position like Tom was. So um, I just kind of, you know, brainstormed with some people in the foundation uh, and through the outpatient program at Fraser. Um, they gave me a few things that, you know, were needs for people like, you know, outpatients like Tom and housing was one of those housing transportation. How do you get a person from, you know, out of state, out of town to, to be able to be a part of that program and do their rehab. That's a big barrier for a lot of people. It's like, if you can't afford it or make the move, you can't, you can't come to Louisville and get that, that rehab that you sure. need. So, sure. um, so housing and transportation became, uh, the kind of the focus. And I thought, you know, Tom was in that situation and a uh, great opportunity to train and do a race and, uh, uh, and then it, it just kind of one thing led to another and it turned into what it was. And how many years has it been going now? Uh, so I started in the, like the end of 2012. And so I did, I ended up uh, choosing to do the Ironman here in Louisville in 2013 uh, as kind of the fun, as kind of the push to get it started. Honestly, didn't know what it was going to be. I, I, I didn't know what it was going to turn into necessarily. I thought it was, you know, potentially just going to end, you know, I was do the race that raised as much money as I could. And then after the race was done, I didn't really have a clear vision for what it, what it would turn into after that. So, um, it was totally grassroots. Like, I mean, it, and, and so, um, I think the big, one of the big turning points was when I was kind of sitting down thinking about like, okay, how much money do I actually want to raise? It was, 
you know, into January that I decided to do the race and the race is in August. So I had about eight months and, um, you know, and I thought, um, $10,000 would be a huge goal. And if that was even possible. And then I kind of thought, well, you know, one of the things I was reading a book on prayer and about how, um, a lot of times, you know, we don't show faith enough because we're, our prayers are too small. So I thought, well, $100,000 would definitely get attention if I was to say, I'm going to try to raise $100,000. Mm-hmm. And uh, I knew it was like, I could crash and burn. I could raise a couple hundred and look like an idiot because I, you know, set this ridiculous goal and didn't even come close to it. But I thought, what the heck, you know, I'm going to take a chance and see what God can do and what people would step up and do. And, um, and got connected with people that just moved mountains and got connected with the marketing department and um, media relations, got some publicity and uh, it just snowballed. And it was, it was amazing to see how many people connected with it and um, what it ended up turning into. So 2013 to your answer. Do you know how much it's raised to date? Do you have a number that you keep in mind and, yeah, um, at this point, the last number I've gotten was a little over two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Wow, that's um, awesome. Yeah, so that um, you know, and one of the cool things was that year when I when I raced, I think on race day I ended up raising uh, about eighty seven thousand dollars. So wow. I, I didn't hit the goal, um, but because of that. Uh, after the race, shortly after the race, I had people reaching out wanting to do the Ironman the following year in Louisville to raise money for the fund um, and try to get to that $100,000. So I think because I didn't hit that goal, that was a means for people to step up and take it further. And that was the, I think the key to actually perpetuating the fund to continue on other people choosing to raise, raise money for it, kept the awareness going. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, I mean, it, it went, we didn't have the Ironman, um, you know, last year. Uh, well, it got, it got changed up last year. We didn't have it this year, but um, uh, yeah, it's carried on that long and, uh, and continued to raise money through various means. And it became way more than it would have if I would have hit that $100,000 goal uh, in the first year. What do the funds go to? Like, if um, is there housing provided for people going back and you know forth to Fraser, or is it just for people to catch rides to and from? How does that work? Yeah, it's it's kind of geared all around housing and transportation. So it, it looks a little bit different based on um, you know we tried to set some general guidelines for who could be eligible um, for funds, but really um, I think. Initially, I was thinking housing, like long term, um, but what it turned into probably more was transportation is just getting uh, people that, you know, a lot of people that are regional uh, that commute to Frazier if they have any kind of neurological spinal cord injury. Um, and so, you know, the, the challenge is, you know, getting rides uh, and, and having family or friends work around their work schedule to get rides. And a lot of times, the best case is to get a taxi service to help. And so we're able to get gas cards um, to help pay for taxis or Ubers or whatever. Um, that's probably the bulk of it. And then we're able to offset some costs for people that do come in and have to find an apartment, um, various apartments or 
or housing situations around town um, because they do come in from out of town. So um, yeah, anything that helps increase access for mostly outpatients to come and have access to, to doing the rehab downtown at Frazier. Why is Frazier so popular for people to come to? Is it, I mean, I know it's like really important in our city, but maybe I'm just failing to grasp like, like people are traveling from all over the country to come here and this, and the spine center is mm-hmm. like, is it one of the top in the nation? I mean, I, that's my ignorance, you know, on my part. I don't even yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, it it certainly is, and uh, and some of the most groundbreaking research has happened out of um, out of the uh, out of the Fraser Rehab Institute. So, there's a handful of spinal cord dedicated rehab facilities in the country. It's called the um, Neuro Recovery Network, and um, and Louisville is one of the biggest and most prominent. And so, it just happens to be a destination for a lot of people. Um, if they can get into the outpatient program because they have uh, what's called the locomotor program. And so they have uh, basically treadmills with harnesses that they get people that can't walk and they get them harnessed in and they actually take them through a a walking pattern, a gait pattern on their feet with the assistance of uh, therapists. So it's kind of a, a really unique groundbreaking kind of therapy that's not uh, accessible in a lot of places and they've had a ton of success with it. Uh, so yeah, it's just one of the, uh, one of the best in the, in the nation. And I think actually in the world. Take me to a moment that makes you emotional. You talked about turning points uh, a few minutes ago. Take me to a moment where, you know, cause I, I would imagine it, it, when you're first starting something like this, you know, your mind's going a thousand miles a minute. Like you said, we got to get marketing, we got to get people to put up funds and we got to work with different people. And then, but after a few years, did you have a moment where you realized like, wow, we are everything that we did at the beginning has come to fruition. We are helping people. We are changing people's lives. Yeah, man. I'm, uh, I remember, the year that I did it, um, I think one of the things that I wanted to make a, uh, a focus of the fundraising was connecting people from, um, from the dollars that they donated to the result of what it was doing. And so I think, you know, because initially I was thinking maybe to raise money for research uh, or some different things. And I Um, as valuable as that is, it's hard a lot of times to motivate people to give because they don't necessarily see the impact or the result of their donations. So one of the things I wanted to do is try to meet um, as many patients as I could. Um, And as soon as money started coming in, I wanted it to be able to go into the pockets of people who needed it. And so so it was cool because before the Ironman even happened, early on in the process, early summer, we had raised up several thousand dollars and we started to actually give out um, gas cards and money to help pay offset some rent. And so I was able to go and meet some of the patients and just talk to them and get to know them and get to know their story and um, went up to the, to watch them do therapy and stuff. And so that was probably one of the coolest things is, is starting, it was starting to share some of those stories of the people that, um, you know, not just the one, just because they were getting money through the, the funds, but um, just what their experience was and the challenges and, you know, how so much we take for granted in terms of our physical abilities. And, you know, Tom, I remember, you know, when it, when it came to getting to the, 
rehab center for rehab in the morning, it took him about four hours to actually, from the time he got out of bed to the time that he was able to get to the rehab facility, just because of the time it took to, to do everything. Mm -hmm. um, and so being able to meet some of those people and tell the stories and then see, you know, their gratitude for what they're doing, you know, what, what the funds were able to do financially, and then being able to share that and, uh, um, and, and hopefully, you know, then people could see, Hey, I donated $20 and this person is getting money to help pay for their transportation and look at what they're going through and, you know, how inspirational their story is and stuff. So, um, that was really a cool thing. I think that really helped, um, under help, help, you know, uh, everybody understand what the money was going to. Now, I know that the Ironman races have been canceled this year due to COVID, but are you still training? Are you still planning on running more in the future? Yeah, I think, I think my Ironman career is definitely on the downslope. I've done, <laughs> I did it in 2008 and I did it in 2013 and I've done, I think it was, I've, I've done 12 or 13 half Ironmans as well. Okay. Um, but so I've kind of gone over the bell curve of, um, I think my long distance career just because, ah, man, I don't feel like there's anything I have left to really kind of prove to myself or, um, you know, the experiences are fun, but it's so time consuming and, uh, just got married back in December and, Congratulations. Um, so, you know, Thank you very much. Um, and, uh, you know, and so there's just other things now that I think I want to dedicate some of my, my free time to obviously trying to stay in shape, get out on the bike and run as much as I can, uh, within reason. But, uh, um, yeah, the time and, and the motivation it takes to really dedicate yourself to, to training in a way that, um, you feel like is, is, uh, is valuable and worth, you know, the, the time it takes to do a race. Um, yeah, I think I'm probably on the downslope of my, my, my triathlon <laughs> career. What <Thankfully>. is, <laughs> what is training like from, you know, from starting to, I'm going to do this to race day? Um, well, I, you know, one thing that I always say to, um, anybody that wants to do it is you have to be, you have to be all in to really do it well. Um, especially an Ironman, like in a half Ironman, you can even kind of get away with not training a hundred percent. Um, and you can finish it. Um, it all depends on your goal, but you know, in finishing an Ironman, it should be everybody's goal. It's not, you know, necessarily hitting a time goal, but, uh, you have to really kind of think through, um, your training plan, uh, what you're willing to sacrifice, you know, in terms of all the other, uh, social things and relationships and things that you might take for granted. Um, the, you know, there's a financial commitment to, you know, you gotta, you gotta get a bike and if you don't already have one, but some of that stuff. Um, and then you just have to be prepared to just stay like, you gotta, you gotta dedicate every day to it. You know, you've got to think about when you get into bed and what kind of food are you eating to optimize your performance and your recovery. Um, and, uh, and it's financial commitment from the standpoint of the race. I've, one of the great parts about doing the race in Louisville was it was local. So there were like, you didn't have to think about a plane flight and hotel room and all that kind of stuff to train. Um, but you know, training through the summer heat was tough, mm. you know, early mornings, you know, on the weekends, getting out before it gets too hot, um, getting out after a long day of work 
um, to get in a bike ride or a run, swimming over your lunch hours. You know, it's just all, everything revolves around training and getting enough training in. So there's a lot of sacrifices. It's definitely not easy to do for if you've got a family or anything else. So, um, so that's the big thing. And then laying out, knowing, you know, having people to train with and, um, and knowing uh, how much, you know, you just knowing like what's the appropriate level of training, how much is too much and what you should, how much, how you're going to balance swimming and biking and running and all of that stuff. Um, you have to really think through a lot of that. For people that are listening that maybe don't know the distances, could you share the distances of each component? And then how do you go about balancing, you know, training? Okay, I'm going to do like swimming first and then running or or like, do you stack them during the week? Like, how do you go about that? So the distances are for the swim. It's a swim bike run. So swimming is 2.4 miles. Um, and that's in open water. So, you know, that's one of the considerations is a lot of times you, you know, training is in a pool and then you've got to be able to be comfortable in open water with a lot of people swimming around you. So that needs to be a component of your training. Um, 112 miles on the bike, and then you finish it with a marathon, which is 26.2 miles. (laughs) So it's all, it's daunting when you think about it in, you know, in the 140.6 miles, Um, but it's amazing when you get into, you know, and I would say like for most people, you need to dedicate at least a year, you know, 12 months to it. If you are not coming from any kind of significant training background, but, um, there's, I mean, there's a lot of different ways that people piece it all together. I mean, people are training around work schedules and everything. So, you know, you, sometimes you just, you have to get it done when you can. I tried to do, um, Swimming is the shortest part, you know, so if you're somewhat efficient, you should be able to get through the swim with hopefully the minimal amount of energy expended, you know, and if you're technically good at swimming. Um, And so, you know, swimming probably takes up a little less of your total time. And then cycling, I've learned, is probably the most important part because it's the longest. I I was, it was around six hours for the 112 mile ride for me during the races that I did. Um, and a lot of people think the marathon is the hardest because you're coming off the bike. And so, you know, a lot of people focus a lot on running, but mm-hmm. if your bike is not, if you, if you are under trained on the bike, your run is going to suck anyway. And so you really have to be prepared and be as, as trained as you can on the bike so that you're not already tanked by the time you start the run, you know, cause it doesn't matter how strong of a runner you are if, if you're not good on the bike. Sure. So, yeah. um, so I kind of focused on trying to do how it worked for me was, um, I would, I would swim on average four or five times a week. And, and those would be, you know, around 45 minutes. It wasn't anything crazy. I was just trying to swim continually and do some drills. And that was usually at lunchtime for me for, Fortunately, working right across the street from the U of L natatorium was very advantageous for yeah, me. So <laughs> it was easy to just run over there, swim, and then come back to work. Um, <laughs> but then, uh, but then running, I would run um, generally three times a week, and then I would try to bike four times a week. So it just it just depended. But the bikes and the runs were you know after work um, pretty much all the time, and you know, it was tough because, you know, you can only get so much 
time on the bike, you know, after work, if it, if you finish at five or six. So, um, my weekends were dedicated to long workouts, usually some type of a bike run combination. Um, those are really important to train your body to handle a long bike ride and a long run back to back. Um, so one of my, one of the things that I like to do, um, was like, uh, almost like a, like a repeat workout. So instead of doing like a really long bike ride, 70 miles, say followed by a 10 mile run, mm -hmm. I would break it up and do something like a 20 mile bike and then run for two miles and then repeat that four or five times in a row. Mm. So I would accumulate like 80 to hundred miles of riding and 10 to 12 miles of running, but I would break it up. So I got to practice those transitions of getting off the bike and starting to run. Plus it just mentally made the workout a little bit more manageable when you're doing it in shorter increments like that. Sure. I mean, you, you've broken it up into reps. It's just reps for an absolute sicko. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny when the workout ends up being about eight hours long, it's like, wow, okay. Yeah. That was the whole day. Now it's time for dinner. <laughs> yeah, how, how many, how many calories are you burning on a day like that? Oh boy. Uh, yeah, it's, it's tough to say. I mean, you're, you're probably getting in, uh, you know, four to 6,000 calorie range, Jeez. you know? So, um, it's, it's, uh, it's tough. Nutrition is so huge, such a big part of your training and learning what works for you. And, you know, when, you know, if you're out on a bike ride, you can only take so much food with you and learning how to be efficient and how much carbohydrate versus fat versus protein and all of those things and what your stomach can handle and how much liquid versus solid you're trying to figure out, um, you know, and stuff. So, uh, it, it's a, it's a fun learning experience and it's like a, it's like a big puzzle piece, you know, he's trying to figure out, you know, how much, how many calories am I burning? What pace am I going? What's my power output? Uh, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So it's, it's a fun process. You learn a lot about your body. How did you handle setbacks and failures throughout your training? And, and really, I guess, you know, so much of training um, kind of relates to life in general, right? It's a kind of like a nutshell thing. But how have you, how were you able to handle setbacks and failures when they would come up? Uh, I think the first thing is just kind of what is your definition of failure, you know, and understanding that um, failure is just, to me is, um, is not following through, you know, is not dedicating yourself and following through. Um, as long as you learn from the experience, it's not failure. Um, and so I think the, the, the idea of having uh, a very clear goal is really important. Something that, and it, it's good because I, I, you know, I talk about, this to my athletes a lot is you're going to have a lot of ups and downs. And, uh, as long as you have a, a very clear end goal in mind and the goal needs to not only be just like, a, a finishing time or, you know, complete a distance in a race, but it should be something bigger, hopefully than yourself. And so, and, and because I think, I did the race in 2008 and it was an interesting comparison because I did a, I did the Ironman in 2008 and I was just trying to 
I was just trying to finish and check off a bucket list item. Yeah. And uh, it was a great experience, you know, and, you know, I had a time goal and I was a little off of it and, you know, and, but it was, it was a great experience. Um, the second time I did it, I was doing it for a much different reason. And the dedication that I experienced personally and the motivation to get out and train every day was so far beyond what it was the first time because I knew I was accountable and in trying to do something bigger than just complete an Ironman for myself. And so that was really uh, a good awakening for me, I think, is um, the, the fact that when I didn't feel like training uh, or I didn't have a good workout um, or whatever, uh, I was extra motivated to get back out and continue um, and make sure that I didn't miss any workout because not only was I, you know, I was trying to, you know, uh, to start this fund, but I had people actually donating money. So I felt accountable to like, you know, if people, if I'm going to lay out this goal and say, I'm going to do this race and people are actually donating hard earned money and then I'm skipping workouts you know, what does that say about me? You know, and so it just was such a, uh, so I never really felt failure along the way. I mean, I knew that, man, I mean, the, 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 the chance of me raising a hundred thousand dollars is probably pretty small anyway. So it was like, you know what, I'm willing to fail big. If I, if I raise a couple thousand dollars, so be it. I'm just going to make sure that I do everything that I possibly can, you know, make all the connections I can train as hard as I can. Um, and, and put myself in a position when I got to the start line, I felt complete freedom. I was like, this is, you know, even if we don't raise the last $13,000 on race day and we fall short of a hundred thousand, if I don't finish in under, you know, 11 hours and qualify for the world championships, which was kind of an outside goal. I was like, it's okay. I made it to the start line. I know that I did everything I could have done. From a training standpoint, I followed through on everything. So really like failure to me at that point wasn't even, there was no such thing, you know, as, as failure because I, the only failure was if I just, if I quit or didn't follow through on it. More with Jason in a minute, but first I got to tell you about my friends at Four Roses Bourbon who would like me to remind you that winning deserves a worthy reward and you should celebrate life's wins with Four Roses family of award-winning bourbons. Sit back, relax, take a sip, and savor the victory. Learn more at fourrosesbourbon.com. Be mellow. Be responsible, my friends. Now back to Jason. What does your body feel like after you're done, and how long does it take you to recover from, from that? My body felt awful. I'm not going to lie. It was bad. <laughs> I was, it was, it was in the nineties, both years that I did it. Oh um, and so the heat was probably the biggest challenge. Um, it was just kind of like, I felt sick during the run. And so I kind of had a really hard time eating or drinking anything for probably the last two to three hours of the race. Mm -hmm. And at that heat and everything, it started, uh, you know, I, I kind of almost had a gag reflex whenever I tried to drink any water. Um, it was just, it, it, I didn't, I, I felt, it felt like I had the flu 
and I was trying to run in 95 degree heat, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, so I, I, uh, yeah, I, I, I threw up a little bit after the race, um, didn't feel great. And, uh, the first year I actually did go to the medical area and got an IV, um, and then felt great the next day, woke up and felt phenomenal. Mm -hmm. I was hungry. I had my appetite. I slept pretty well. Um, and then the second year I did it or the second time I did it, um, I probably needed to get an IV, uh, but I said I would rather just go home, shower, and fall asleep. And I felt like I was in a daze for a couple days. Like dehydration, you know, was yeah. still lingering. <clears throat> I dropped 12 pounds the second race I did um, over the course of the race. So I was, I was weighing in. <laughs> I, was, my, my, I mean, I, I realized how much weight I lost when my hat was loose on my head. I was, I was like, oh man, God. okay. I was like, I'm really, my face looks skinny. Um, so uh, it took me a little while to recover from the second one a little bit longer because uh, I probably needed to get rehydrated a little bit faster. But um, yeah. it, wasn't, it wasn't terrible. I was pretty sore for, for a couple of days. But I think, um, you know, when you train for 10 to 12 months and you've done some of the workouts that are similar, um, it's just, uh, I, I felt pretty good after a couple of days. Uh, it didn't feel like it took me two weeks or anything like that. What did you learn about your body and how much you can push yourself if you really just dig in? Because I see, you know, like I, I'll see like stats when it says, you know, when you're ready to quit, your body's actually almost like 40% done, right? But um, you mm -hmm. certainly tested that hypothesis so like how 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 much deeper did you have uh in the tank when you're training and, and racing well there's definitely a physical part to it you know when you when you think about um it, it i think it depends what you're doing i um the the long steady state type uh nature of an iron man is just about covering distance being smart pacing yourself covering the distance um in that regard, uh, I feel like a lot of it is mental um, because if if you if you're just steady, if you if you do, you know what you're supposed to do in your hydration and your nutrition. Um, all so much of it is just mentally. You just you're you're just tired of being out there, you know, on the bike or running or whatever. But physically, you certainly can keep going, and so. You know, whether it's putting the headphones in and getting a song going or just, you know, resetting your framework and saying, um, you know, why you're doing it, what, what you're out there for. Those types of things are absolutely essential to your training. Um, there's, it's interesting when I think about fatigue because, you know, it's part of my job, you know, I study fatigue. And um, there's three different uh, theories of why somebody fatigues. There's depletion, there's accumulation, and there's regulation. So depletion meaning like you lose energy, you just deplete your energy stores, you know, all the carbohydrate and stuff. Accumulation is you're accumulating metabolic waste products that are inhibiting your ability to continue going on. But the third one is actually what is going on, which is regulation. And so that comes from your brain. And so it's not the actual physiological 
depleting energy or accumulating metabolic waste that's determining fatigue. It's your brain that's sensing those signals that is saying, okay, I'm going to inhibit your ability to continue to produce work. And so your brain regulates your output based on this, on this feedback coming from your body. Mm -hmm. And so if you can actually put yourself in situations where you're experiencing this fatigue and you push through it, your brain understands from a regulatory standpoint that, okay, I'm not in a dire situation. I'm not on the verge of death. My, I can continue, the body can continue to go. So it's so important that you're not just training from a physical standpoint, but you're putting yourself in those situations where your brain will understand, I do have more left and I can keep going. And so convincing yourself of that is really important. And the only way you can really do that is to put yourself in those situations. And so to find ways if it's, you know, if it's with a training group that's, you know, fitter than you, that's a great way to do it. If you're by yourself, you've got to summon the, the motivation somehow to be able to continue to go and push through that last two miles or whatever it is um, to be able to say, you know what, I don't have to quit. I don't have to slow down. I know my body can actually do this. So um, it was a great learning experience. And that's what, uh, um, yeah, I, d I did realize that in that regard, you do have a lot more in the tank than you think you might. Great stuff on the fatigue. That I'm like sitting here like a student, just like, oh my, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, great. Uh, what's your go-to song when you need some juice? Oh, man. I get, um, you know, I tend to listen to more kind of classic rock, on, but I like, some, I mean, Metallica, maybe. I mean, I like some of the angry stuff. Some oh, of yeah, the stuff that just gets you going, you know, it's, uh, that definitely helps. But stuff with good lyrics, too, I found, you know, just things that even if it is a little bit slower, I'm trying to think of an example I can off the top of my head. But, um, well, you know, like, I don't know, even it's funny. One of the songs is um, um, How Great Thou Art, you know, like something like that. It's like a praise song, but it's amazing how that would get me going, too, because it just like it just puts you in a mindset of being grateful, you know, and thankful. And it's like, okay, that gets me motivated. But that one aside, yeah, mostly like Metallica would get me going. Something fast. Um, fast and angry. <laughs> what do you tell yourself? Like, so I do CrossFit and I love to run. I've done a couple half marathons and stuff like that. But when I'm in the middle of it and when i'm in the middle of a tough workout you know i like to tell myself to stay in the fight i'll just and i'll just hang on to that and just repeat it like it's like competitive you know what i mean like do you have anything like that what do you tell yourself when you're hopping off the bike to go run a half marathon or, or a full marathon or when you're in the middle of a grueling workout or you're training your athletes and they're in the middle of of, of just the shit, you know, what are you telling yourself, um, to, to stay in it? Uh, I wish I had some great, uh, quote to give you. I don't, I don't know if I had like, uh, a mantra, so to speak. I maybe used different things at different times. Um, but I think the, uh, 
I, I would say overall, it's, it's the process. Focus on the process. Not being concerned with the result, but let the process, if you get the process right, the result will take care of itself. And if you get the process right and the result is not what you want, it's still a success. Um, and it's a learning experience. So growth happens. Growth is the ultimate goal. And so growth comes from the process, not the result. And so that's what I would say is the biggest um, thing that I would, that would drive me forward is understanding that if you're not motivated on a specific day and you get out and you do that workout anyway, even if that workout is not your best workout, the process is consistency and growth. And you made a, you made a, a step forward just by the fact that you didn't stay in bed or you did the workout when you didn't want to. Um, so there's a lot of different ways that you can um, define success. And I would say um, that's one of the things that we focus on a lot is just being dedicated to the process and not being concerned with the result. That um, I think a lot of times helps me stay focused and consistent with with what I'm trying to do, even if that's not necessarily athletically related. Let's transition a little bit, okay? What made you want to get into coaching in the first place? Uh, I would say, I mean, probably back, um, well, I, you know, I was always an athlete and always loved sports. And so, you know, always had a goal of playing professional baseball. And um, I think part of that was just um, – just trying to find ways. One of the, one of the things that's kind of funny, cause I think back to like when I was a freshman in high school and I was a big Chicago Bulls fan back in the nineties and, you know, Jordan and all this stuff and thinking about, you know, my whole goal and was to try to dunk a basketball before I graduated high school. And so I was always kind of like thinking, okay, what can I do to improve my vertical jump? Um, and I was very into training. I was maybe a little bit introverted in a way like that. I just, I could, I had no problem being by myself and just training, um, even in high school. So, um, I think that was maybe the start of it, you know, just kind of being interested from an athletic standpoint of, you know, what can I do to jump higher and run faster and stuff. And I love sports. I think I always in the back of my mind wanted to make sports a career. Um, loved what well, I think when I got to college, when I took anatomy and physiology for the first time, I was just fascinated by it, learning all about muscle physiology and um, respiratory physiology and stuff like that. Um, so I think, you know, knowing like from a human performance standpoint, really being interested in that, how fast can somebody run, how high can somebody jump? And then I think when I found out, you know, this career and I pursued it as a grad student when I was at Indiana, um, and started coaching, I got to realize a little bit the greater impact you could have from a coaching standpoint, like as a mentor, as a role model. And I found that really fulfilling, um, trying to, you know, impact people beyond just, you know, having a good athletic performance, but what can the process of training teach you about yourself and character development and making sacrifices and, you know, leadership and being able to communicate and be a good teammate and all of those types of things, I think really added to the actual X's and O's and the physiology interests that I had. So, um, 
thinking through this is like, hey, this is a really cool way to make an impact on people's lives, um, not just physically and helping them achieve goals, but be able to give them life skills that will help them beyond uh, when their playing career is done. And I played baseball a little bit in college and I dealt with knee injuries. I had my high school uh, season cut short, my high school career cut short. I had a, I tore my ACL my, uh, in January, my senior year in high school, had my high school career cut short, kind of taken away, you know, and that's mm-hmm. like the most traumatic thing that had ever happened to me at that point, you know? Um, so I, I, you know, I understood that, you know, your sports career is short, you know, and it's going to end at some point, whether you exhaust your eligibility or if you deal with an injury and you've got to have some, you know, fallback and know what, you know, what your identity is and be able to handle those kind of uh, challenges. So felt really, I mean, really good uh, fulfilling type of position to be in that uh, in the coaching uh, area of the coaching arena. So that was uh, really fulfilling to me and, and why I probably pursued it. Yeah, I think so many people, when they, oh, so many athletes, you know, they always identify as an athlete, right? That's the label, that's like the main label. They walk around, oh, he plays or she plays, whatever, right? And then when that ends, they're like, it's like an identity crisis. It's like, what, what, what do I do now? Like, who am I? And I, I, so many athletes struggle with that. And so, um, and, and I don't think that a lot of them, like, it's like, as we start to get deeper and deeper into, you know, mental health awareness and athletes starting to find their voice, more people are speaking on it. But I think a lot of people still deal with that transition and pivot of now, what do I do? You know, right. And it happens so much. You see it a lot with people that are at the pinnacle of the sport too. a lot. I see what with uh, Olympic athletes when they win a gold medal and then, you know, and then maybe they're still competing, but the depression that they see happen because they've spent their whole lives pursuing a goal with a reason, with a purpose. And then once and not, you know, not even because of failure, but because of success, then they've achieved it. And now they don't have a direction anymore in the, the actual pursuit of that goal and, uh, and why they get up out of bed in the morning is gone. If that's their reason, which a lot of times it obviously is, or it's the primary reason and that's gone. Now where, where do you find that fulfillment? And so, so, so important, um, to have, you know, a, a greater purpose. Faith is so important to me. And obviously it's just as, um, something to, to consider like, what, what is, you know, your, your greater purpose? Who are you as an individual? If, and we, we always draw the distinction. I like the distinction of, um, who you are versus what you do. Mm. Um, and so if you, if you find a label and you say, uh, Jason, who are you? Well, I'm an Ironman triathlete. Okay. But what, when, what happens when you're not competing? Mm-hmm. Is that still who you are or is that just what you do? I'm a strength and conditioning coach. Is that who you are or is that what you do? Because I could, I could get fired. I could lose my job. I could find another career. It's like, well, that's a difference between what you do and who you actually are as a person. So um, understanding the difference between that is critical, I think, because uh, a lot of people don't look beyond what their, maybe their college career is and um, and if they find too much identity in what they do, then um, 
if that gets taken away, they get lost. You brought up Olympic athletes. Yeah, I think at some point when you are so dedicated to a goal and then you reach it and then it becomes now what? Now what? You know, mm-hmm. now now what are we going to do? Um, I want to ask you about Olympic athletes because I read that you were an intern and worked with some Olympic athletes that were training back in like 2002. Um, when you've trained, because you've been training collegiate athletes for 20 years, right? Um, mm-hmm. How is it different training with collegiate athletes versus Olympic athletes in how the two groups are different, respond to criticism, deal with setbacks? Like, do you notice anything different about those two types of athletes? Uh, you know, yes and no. I don't, I don't know if I could categorize it too broadly in terms of the difference. It really depends on the individual, maybe a little bit the sport and the age of the athlete. When I was interning at the Olympic Training Center, which what you were referring to in Lake Placid, um, you know, I was working with athletes from like developmental 14, 15 years old, all the way up to 26, 28 years old, 30 years old, like some of the bobsledders I was working with the winter Olympic athletes. And so um, they, you know, those, those were kids that were the developmental kids are still in school and they're still, you know, not at the peak of their sport. They're figuring out, are they going to be good enough to compete at the highest level versus some that were definitely Olympic level caliber, um, you know, that are far more dedicated. Um, you find that in, in college athletics too. So, you know, they, there's, you know, it really depends on the sport. Obviously you got your, your sports that have a little bit more of a, uh, opportunity for, uh, professional, uh, you could play professionally or find, you know, ways to compete beyond collegiate, uh, the collegiate career. So, you know, some people understand it for what it is. It's a, it's, you know, they know they're good at their sport and they, are trying to balance career and uh, our academics and athletics. And uh, they don't, you know, they train reasonably and they work hard and they're dedicated, but they're not overboard on it. Um, what I find, I think, cause I've been able to work with some Olympians also with some of the U of L athletes, um, some swimmers in particular that have competed um, internationally and at the Olympic level, um, what they do, um, from a lifestyle standpoint, I think is the big differentiator. Uh, there's a level of, of maturity, um, not always, but I, th- I would say on the most part, um, there's a level of maturity that comes along with understanding that um, they really need to be a student of the sport. Um, they can't just show up and do what the coach says and work hard for two hours and leave. They understand like they've got to actually um, – they have to really focus in on nutrition, recovery, preparation, sleep, uh, lifestyle choices, who you're going to associate with, mm-hmm. you know, what type of music you're going to listen to, what you're going to watch on TV. It's all about input, you know, input versus output. And we talk a lot so much about, you know, what, what are you eating nutritionally or drinking? You know, you, you understand that's input. And, you know, if you eat like crap, you're going to produce not as, not as well. And if you eat well, you're going to feel better and you're going to perform better, but everything that's input, you know, and that's all the whole psychological mental side of things too. And so if you're feeding yourself good information and you're surrounding yourself with good, positive people who are supportive and good influences, that's good input as well. And that's going to manifest in 
in better output physio physiologically, physically, um, who you are as a person. So, you know, just surrounding yourself with good people, not being afraid to fail, being dedicated 24 hours a day, um, being willing to make sacrifices. Those are the things I think that make um, any athlete, you know, whether it's Olympic or collegiate or professional, going to make them the best at whatever they're, they're trying to do. Okay, just a couple more questions here. You've been so gracious with your time. Thank you. This has been amazing, and I can't. This is going to come out next week. Um, awesome. Next Thursday. So, um, thank you so much. Just a couple more questions here. I ask everybody that comes on. This is a goofy question, okay? But in a fight between these two animals, a Bengal tiger and a ram, who do you think is going to emerge as the winner? Wow. Okay. Not knowing the details of all of the personality and physical traits of those two. Um, ah, I, I like the idea if I was to just say it without thinking it through too much, I like the idea of thinking about the Ram being the victor. Um, because I think about, um, mass, you know, just like in terms of, uh, very focused direction and uh, mass times velocity is hard to beat. And so, um, yeah, I don't, I, if, oh man, I don't know if this will be a good answer or a deep answer, <laughs> but I could put it include on the podcast because <laughs> I think about the agility, you know, of the, of the Bengal tiger. And right, the, right. Uh, you know, the persistence of it. Um, that's a good question. I'm going to stick with my first answer. I'm going to say the Ram just because of straight force, force and direction, one track mind. We get a lot of different answers. My friends and I, my friend group, we've been asking this question for a decade now, right? And anybody that we ask, people come at it with different angles. And I'm always curious yeah. because it's like, you probably never expect to see those two animals fight, but you know, everybody has like a, yeah. a really good reason for why they think would logically be the winner. Right. So. right. Yeah. Well, now that I think about it, the tiger, I mean, the Bengal tiger, you think about uh, the Ram being, you know, focus one in, in one direction. And then the Bengal tiger, you know, is like maybe more adaptable, has more tools at its disposal to get to you. So, but then, that could be a yeah, uh, but then you go back <laughs> and you're like what you said with, with the mass and velocity, you know, almost like, um, mm -hmm. like a, a, a safety flying in with his helmet, you know, you get that one I shot, know. that clean shot that's done. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. A, a Ram is good at one thing and it knows how to do it. So it's going <laughs> to get it done. <laughs> All right. <laughs> last, last question. Okay. What is the, truest most relatable best piece of advice that you've ever been given if i if i had to choose one piece of advice maybe it would go back to just um focus on the process uh that's still you know one of the things that i think is um so helpful in understanding how to define success and failure and uh, knowing that growth is the um growth is the objective and so focusing on the process, not the result. Best piece of advice. Wonderful. 
Hey, Jason, I uh, I really enjoyed this, man. Thank you so much. We've gone an hour here, and um, we should do this again sometime if you'd like. Yeah, awesome. Anytime. I appreciate the invite. It was it was a lot of fun. Okay, now, did you guys love Jason or did you love Jason? I mean, how good was he? The stuff on the fatigue thing, the three types of fatigue, that was awesome. That was awesome. I these these are man. I tell you what, you know, I'm I'm gonna touch on some sports stuff here, but doing these interviews and doing the Uber stories, that's that's way more you know geared towards me and, and who I am and uh, getting people on like Jason on, getting people like Jason on the show to talk about that kind of stuff. That's awesome, man, and that's what I want to do. If it can reach just one person, if if just one person hears one of these interviews and walks away feeling inspired, empowered, motivated. I'm I can do this too. I'm not alone in this. I'm going to start something. I'm going to do something. I'm going to be a positive change. That's what it's all about, man. That's what it's all about. So, I hope that's you. If not, send it to somebody that you might think will be that person, okay? Send it to whoever. Your your grandma, your boss, your friend, your uncle. Hey, Uncle Vinny, you got to hear Vinny T, all right? <laughs> send it to him, okay? And leave me a comment and leave me a little review and a rating on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, if you vibe with these, okay? Uh, I'm going to continue to do those. I want to get into a couple of uh, sports takes here, right? And then we'll do some Uber stories and to, to wrap up today's show, okay? The NBA resumes tonight, and I'm way more excited for the NBA than I am the MLB, okay? I would absolutely love if it were Lakers-Celtics at the end of all this, Okay, it's probably going to be either Boston or Milwaukee out of the East. And in all honesty, I mean, in a seven-game series, I think the Clippers probably get to the finals, hopefully assuming that we can play out the rest of the playoffs and the shortened season and then get into the playoffs and everything. But uh, I would be surprised kind of if the Lakers beat the Clippers. I mean, obviously, I want LeBron to win. And I want LeBron to win as many championships as he possibly can. But if that, you know, I, I just I, I I think that the Clippers start to finish have a deeper roster, a deeper lineup, a deeper bench. The Lakers had guys that didn't even make it back to the bubble. I don't think the Lakers have enough bodies to compete with the Clippers. They play tonight, so we're gonna get to watch how that goes. But man, I, I'm just you know, I, as much as I want it to be the Lakers and LeBron at the very end of this thing, um, I, I'm I, I'm I'm really kind of in the belief that Kawhi Leonard is gonna get another ring, which is just good for him. But uh, you know, I, I wish it was LeBron. Okay, the MLB is back for now. Okay, we're gonna have to wait and see what happens with this Marlins situation. Um, here's the big kind of topic this week in, in terms of baseball. We knew that this was going to happen, right, where the Astros are going to be basically on a fuck you tour all across the MLB, and I'm here for it. I am personally here for it, but I have kind of a problem with Joe Kelly being the one that starts it off, okay? First of all, he, he gets suspended eight games for throwing at a couple of Astros players, inciting a bench-clearing brawl. I got him in sports, okay? <laughs> it was awesome. But he gets suspended eight games, which is basically because of the shortened season. It's like the equivalent of 21 or 22-game suspension in a regular season when Astros players didn't even really get punishments like that, which is kind of ludicrous, okay? And here's the thing about Joe Kelly, okay? So I, I do think that suspension is 
way too much. But who is Joe Kelly to stand up and be baseball's white knight? First of all, he wasn't even on the Dodgers when all of that went down and the Astros beat the Dodgers. So out of everybody on the Dodgers that could possibly be pissed off about it and lost to the Astros on some bullshit, Joe Kelly wasn't even on the team. Okay, So it's not like he suffered at the hands of the Astros. But then second of all, the team that he was on during that time was the Boston Red Sox, who, if we'll remember, got busted for Apple Watches and a lot of the same shit that the Astros were doing. So, you know, maybe he's not the best guy to wage a war with the Dodgers or or be the very first one out of the gate doing this kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, settle down there, buddy. Calm down there, buddy, okay? Um, but but still, I am I am here for the Astros uh on the fuck you tour. I'm here for it, okay? Uh also, the ACC announced that they're going to do a 10-game conference schedule with one opportunity to play a non-conference opponent. So this basically leaves the door open uh, for a potential matchup with UK U of L fans, right, and UK fans, depending on what the SEC wants to do, and this is great. Okay, this is great because now all the pressure is on the SEC. They've been put on the spot. The ACC's like, we're going to do a ten-game conference schedule. We'll leave it up because there's some teams that want to play each other that are in-state rivals, right? Like North Carolina, South Carolina, or South Carolina, Clemson. Like, they want to be able to play each other. Kentucky, Louisville, right? And it, and, 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 and really, if it, it doesn't really make sense to say we're going to have, you know, Miami of Miami travel to Syracuse, but L and UK can't travel 70 miles apart to play the same game, right? I mean, that just doesn't make sense. If you're in-state then I feel like there should be a concession like that one loophole game, that one non-conference opportunity game. And basically, the SEC now has to react because if they don't, and if they let the ACC kind of be like, hey, it just means more in the SEC, right? But then the SEC is like, actually, you know, we don't really want to play anybody outside of the SEC, and Kentucky, you're not allowed to play Louisville. Like, all of that hate, and vitriol is going to fall on the SEC because they were the ones that copped out. So uh, I like what the ACC did. I am I am hoping that we get a college football season. I'm very, very pessimistic about it, I'll be honest. I mean, cautiously optimistic is a stretch for me because I just think, you know, with these teams still testing and guys still testing positive, and I just, uh, man, I'll believe it when I see it, okay? I'll believe it when I see it. Let's put it that way. But here we are in August, and September 7th to the 12th is when the ACC says we're going to start playing these games. So we're going to see. We're going to see really quick. And (laughs) I'll believe it when I see it, okay? All right, I want to shift gears here to just a few Uber stories, and then we'll wrap this up, and then I'll talk to you next week, okay? So the first one, uh, we'll call this guy Marcus, right? I picked him up from a hotel where he was staying. And sometimes, you know, when I when I pick somebody up from a hotel, I don't always know if they're staying there or if there's somebody, like obviously they're staying there, but what I mean is if they're living out of the hotel, rock star style, right? Or if they're just somebody from out of town visiting. So I never know. So I'm always very curious about that, right? But I pick him up from a hotel where he was staying and he gets in and he starts telling me, I'm like, why are you staying in the hotel? Are you from here or are you from out of town? He's like, no, nah, man, I'm staying here. You know, I got baby mama drama, acting crazy, right? And I'm like, what happened? Tell, 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 tell your friend Benny T here, right? What happened? What's going on, man? 
And he's like, man, she tried to stab me. And I was like, what? She tried to stab you? And he was like, yeah, man, we got to fighting. And she reached for a knife. And you feel me? I could have fucked her up. Like, I could have been within my rights to physically fuck her up. But I didn't. I just, I chilled. I got away from her. And I had to move out, man. That's why I'm staying in the hotel. And I'm like, dang, that's crazy, man. And he's like, yeah, man, it was it was a bad fight, man. We, we get in fights sometimes, but she's toxic, and I'm not trying to go back to that, so I moved out. And then he's kind of sitting there, and you know that mind-blown gif that uh, it, it's, it's a black dude, and he's like, oh, like, you know what I'm talking about, right? He's making the face like, oh. He had one of these epiphanies where he's sitting in the back seat after a second, and, he, and he's like, what's crazy is she just got out of jail for stabbing somebody else and now she's trying to stab me (laughs) we just we lost it i was like what she just got out of jail for stabbing somebody and he's like yeah man she just got out of prison she stabbed somebody else i'm like dang dude you need to get away from this girl he's like i'm saying that's why i'm at the hotel I'm like, hey, good for you for getting out of a tough situation, because my God, but he, he couldn't believe it. He was like, she just got out of jail. <laughs> Great stuff from Marcus, okay? And then the next, this is literally back-to-back rides, right? The next, I, I'm picking up somebody uh, named Brad. We'll call them Brad, right? And sometimes, you know, I, I can't, I don't see pictures of these riders. I just, you know, whatever the name says, the name says, right? This one says, well, we'll say it says Brad. So I'm, you know, presumably looking for a guy to hop in the car, but uh, it's actually a, a girl with pink hair and wearing a really tight cut shirt, you know, showing some uh, belly button and uh, some short shorts. She gets in the car. And we start talking, and she's got this hot pink hair, and I start to ask what she does. And she had a job, right? She worked hours somewhere else, but her other job was as a stripper here in Louisville. And so we just started talking about what that was like, and she's like, yeah, you know, what's what really sucks is, you know, I, I've had so many Ubers that, that, like, try to touch me. Like, I had a guy who asked me to sit up front because he had a bag in his back seat. And I'm like, well, that's, you're not even supposed to do that. Like, um, I, I keep some, you, like, you're not even supposed to have anything in the back seat. Like, why, that, okay, that's weird from the jump. So then she's like, yeah, he told me to sit up front. And then he started rubbing my leg and my thigh. And I'm like, oh my God, like, what am I going to do? And I got out of the car and I was like, wow, yeah, well, you're safe here, right? And, 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 you know, I'm not going to try any of that shit with you. But she was just telling me about what it was like. Dude, she said that she can make like a thousand bucks in just a couple hours stripping. And obviously, you know, I, they make good money and everything like that. But man, I, I gotta, I guess this is probably where I tell you guys, because you're probably wondering, is she hot or is she not hot? You know, the pink hair can be a thing for some guys. You know, I, I, you know, I can get into it, right? When the girls go on those little bachelorette parties and they put on the wigs and it's pink and it's blue and like, I could, you know what? I could kind of get into that, you know, to be honest. But she was not hot. She was not hot. And honestly, listen, li- listen, most of the strippers in Louisville are not hot. This is like, <laughs> you know, if Louisville has the triple A's for their minor league baseball team, I'd say it's like the double A's for the strippers here in Louisville. I mean, just 
scars, saggy, smokers. It's just not A-plus-level talent, boys. I hate to tell you. But uh, she was very kind. She was very nice, and, and you know, I, I didn't get creepy with it, like, hey, how much do you charge? Like, none of that stuff. You know, I just, whatever. She wanted to talk about it. We would talk about it, but, uh, you know, when she got out, she said, uh, thank you. This has been awesome. My sugar's got it. My sugar daddy's going to tip you very well. And I was like, hey, <laughs> shout out to the sugar daddy, right? Um, and then the next guy that gets in the car, he sits down, and we'll call him Jerry. And I said, listen, the first guy that got in told me about how his baby mama tried to stab him and, and had just got out of prison for stabbing somebody else. And then the woman who was sitting right in the seat that you're sitting in now before you was a stripper and was telling me some stories. So you've got some pretty high bar to meet, my friend. What do you got for me? And Jerry says, well, I'm actually a manager at one of the casinos over in southern Indiana. And boy, do I have some good stories for you. So he told me one about this older woman. And he said she was probably in her 60s or 70s. I'm talking old, right? But she's got this young accomplice with her. Somebody that he thought was her son, presumably. But it was actually her, her baby, right? Her, her little sugar baby, right? And so he's trying to take care of her because she is white girl wasted. She's blacked out, basically. And she's at the bar. She's trying to order another shot. She's got it sitting in front of her, and the bartender and this manager at this casino are trying to tell her in the most polite way possible, ma'am, you're too fucked up, you need to go home, sleep it off, we're not going to call the cops or anything, but you, you just, you, you can't stay here, okay, you're too fucked up. And he says that she goes to sneeze, and her shot glass is sitting right in front of her, and when she sneezes, the force conjured up by the sneeze knocks out her dentures, which fall into the shot glass in front of her, splashing bourbon all over the bar, and he's just now looking at these teeth in the shot glass. And the guy, the young guy, the little cub that she's with, is like, oh my God. Like He doesn't even know what to do, how to react. He's trying to pick her up. She can't even stand up straight. And he said that the woman picked up the shot glass and in one simultaneous act, not only drains the shot, but sticks the dentures back in and maneuvers that all in one little throwback of the of the shot. So he's like, whoa, like what? <laughs> that was that one was a pretty good one, right? That was a pretty good one. He told me to come see him if uh if I'm over at the casinos over there in southern Indiana. I'm not gonna say which one, you know, I I don't wanna get it. Listen, the the point of these stories is just to entertain and uh it's not to out anybody. So that's not why we're doing these, right? It's just to entertain because god damn I am entertained every time I flip on the app and start driving, right? Now this next one the, the the writer isn't necessarily the focal point of the story as much as it is what almost happened to me. So can I just say this as well? No self-respecting city has highways or interstates that are 55 miles an hour. Louisville, if you want to tell me we're a big city, we're this, we're that, you listen, until you go at least 70 on your highways, you can't tell me that you're a big city and you can't get mad when people 
talk about you and you're kind of like, uh, you're kind of a small mid-major, I don't know what you are. But um, no self-respecting city should have speed limits of 55. And really, I mean, if we want to get into this, two-lane highways, the Gene Snyder and some of these highways, that's ridiculous. So give me give me, give me, me a freaking carpool lane, man. Come on. Come on. What is this, right? Um, but uh, anyways, I'm going clearly over the speed limit. Clearly over 55 miles an hour. Like, I think it's 64 and 265. They're both like 55 miles an hour. I don't get it, right? But I'm, 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 I'm going over 55, okay? I'm not going to say how fast I'm going, but let's just say it would have been a hefty fine. It would have been a really expensive ticket, okay? Over 55, that's a low barrier, okay? Give me a break. But I am driving in the fast lane, and all of a sudden... I've got a passenger in the back seat. All of a sudden, I see an unmarked cop car coming up my ass. And he is, I, I mean, I am thinking he is coming straight for me. And I see the lights and I hear it before I really even put it together. But as soon as I do, I just start cussing up a storm. God fucking damn it. Oh my, are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? God, because I don't know what's going to happen if I get a ticket while I'm driving. First of all, that would suck to get pulled over. You've got a person in your back seat, so they're kind of like paying for the ride at that point, right? I mean, they're paying for the stop. That's extra time that they got to pay for unless they stop the stop the ride and get out. But at that point, you know, I'm on the side of the highway. What are they going to do, right? Call another Uber? I, I, don't, I don't know. So um, I don't want that to happen. I also don't know what will happen. Like, I have a clean driving history. Obviously, I wouldn't have been able to be approved as an Uber driver if I didn't. And so I don't have any points on my license or anything like that. But if I get a speeding ticket going well, well over 55. Now, I wasn't going 90 or anything like that. But, like, I'm going well over 55, okay? Um, and if I get a ticket, I don't know how many points that's going to put on my license. I don't know what kind of position that's going to put me in with Uber. So I'm thinking... One and done, right? I mean, that would be a natural. You get a speeding ticket, especially with a rider in the car, you're probably done. So I'm like, no, I cannot, <laughs> I can't lose this, right? So I am, all of this is going through my mind, and I am watching this cop car speed up and get closer and closer and closer to me. I mean, he's hauling ass. And I'm like, fuck. And I'm, uh, and, and so I motion, right, to get over in the other lane because I'm fully prepared to have to go over as many lanes as I need to get to the safe emergency lane, pull over, or go to the next nearest exit or whatever. Like, I'm just getting out of the fast lane and assuming that I'm about to get pulled over. And I'm expecting the worst. And then the clouds lifted, the sun shined down, and God magically said, Benny T, today is not the day that you find out all of the answers to your questions. This cop continued to speed right past me. He had to have been going at least 100 miles an hour. And he goes off into the distance, rides off into the sunset, and I just start laughing. <laughs> I just start laughing. And the woman who's in the back seat hasn't said a word to this point. And I just go, I am so sorry for the language. Uh, <laughs> I thought we were going to get pulled over, and that would not have been copacetic. So uh, crisis averted. Just kidding, right? She's like, hey, I get it, man. I cuss all the time when cops are coming up on me like that. 
I, I, and, and like, you know, we're, we're, we're sitting there doing this and I'm like, she's like, she turned around to see what, you know, obviously what, what was going on and sees this cop flying up and we, we both were just kind of like freaked out. <sighs> but luckily that was not my day. That was not my day to get a ticket and find out the questions to those answers. I, I was able to get over and that cop sped by and I was just like, oh my God. Oh my God. Thank God. Thank God. Right. <laughs> Uh, here's this last one, okay? We'll call this guy Billy. Or just call him Billy, okay? Billy works at, uh, mm, do I want to say it? Uh, Billy works at an internet company, an internet and cable company here in the city of Louisville, right? And I asked Billy because he was, he, he was telling me about how he does a lot of stuff with internet, like internet, uh, fixing problems and stuff like that. And I'm like, Hey, you know when everybody's talking about, oh, I was just talking about this thing and then my phone had to have heard me because now I'm seeing these really targeted ads and they're very specific and I was literally just talking about this the other day. And I'm sure that happens to some extent, right? I mean, we've all kind of thought, hey, my phone is probably listening to me, right? Um, but I said, is it that or is it much more our internet search history and the cookies and, and the things, those kind of things being tracked and that data being sold to other people that then blast us with targeted ads. Like, which, which, which do you really kind of, like, which is it, right? And he's like, no, it is a thousand percent um, the browser history and internet cookies deal. Because here's what happens, right? Most of the time, listen, if you're talking about something, like, yeah, I need to get a new mattress or I need to buy a new bed, sure, you might have said that on the phone or around your phone, right? But chances are you've also probably spent some time Googling this or looking at this on social media or clicking on an ad on Instagram or something like that. So while you did say, hey, I need to get a new car, and then you see a Ford Focus blasted on your Facebook timeline, it might not necessarily be that Facebook is listening to you, right, or your phone is listening to you, but likely you probably searched for cars here in the, in the last, you know, couple days or couple weeks, and now you're talking about these things or having these discussions, you're searching for these things, and now that data gets sold, now that data gets sold over to the companies that then are trying to reach you as a customer, right? So it's not always that your phone and your Alexa and stuff like that is listening, but uh, more than likely, it's your internet search history. So, uh, but, you know, listen, I, I say all of that, and I, I still fully in, in, am in the belief that uh, my phone is listening to me. So uh, you, you can't convince me otherwise. I mean, if the technology exists, you use it. I mean, that's like basic one-on-one stuff. So if... The technology exists and companies and the NSA and the government are able to listen to that kind of stuff. Come on, man. Who's to say that they're not, right? I mean, who's to say that they're not? I don't know. All right. That's all I got this week. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Like us on Facebook at Real Talk WBennyT, Twitter and Instagram at BennyTomp18. I'm working on doing a little merch swap for some advertising so I can have some promo stuff and giveaways to boost some of these numbers up on the podcast. But you can do your part, okay? Share this. Send it to somebody. Put me on, fam. And I'll forever be grateful, my friends. That's all I got this week. I'll talk to you again next Thursday. I am Ben Tompkins. That is Real Talk.